Hello, it's Marjolaine Laroche here. Uh, I've prepared some notes for you to help you understand a little bit the language that Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler is using to describe music and the symphony for you. So I've decided that, well, the principal form that you'll be hearing about is the sonata form, and so I've prepared a short description of what it is exactly. Now, of course you know that a sonata is a sonata. It's a, a group of movements that's been composed to be together. They're meant, these movements are meant to be together. Often they alternate between uh, fast and slow. And the sonata can be for a piano or for two instruments. Or uh, if the sonata is written for a quartet, then it's just called a string quartet. But in fact, it's a sonata for four instruments, as is the symphony. And the symphony is, in fact, a sonata for orchestra. That being said, because of evolution uh, in music and language and choices that were made, the sonata form is also the smaller sonata, which is one movement which is of a specific construction, if you want. And I have to tell you right away that when you analyze music, you often end up wanting to go backwards and sort of shove the music into the form to make it fit because composers have this habit of trying to push the boundaries a little bit. So here we go. Um, a sonata form is often what is used or mostly what is used in the first movement of a symphony or a sonata. It's called binary because usually it has two parts to it. The first part contains a theme, then a transition. The second part contains another theme that's often contrasting, and then a restatement of what was the first theme and a conclusion. In the musical terms, we call it an A-B form. Now, you take this, which is very simple, and it was simple during the Baroque era, and then you add a little this, a little that, and suddenly the first part is not only uh, a part, it's uh, a B part, and the second part is also uh, complicated by more themes than just the, the B theme. So, let me reiterate. A sonata form is binary, it's made of two ideas that are sort of linked, but often are contrasting. And it goes A, a little transition, or not. Uh, the earlier music doesn't really have a transition. Often that's where the bar line is and you hear the first part all over again. Then you get to the bar line that will take you to the second part, B. And then, near the end of B, when you start hearing the beginning of the piece again, you know that you're into the restatement of the theme. And then there will be a conclusion and maybe a little added little bit with, 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 that is called a coda. And the coda is just a little final reverence, if you want, just to properly finish what all has been said.
The role of the recapitulation, the restatement of the theme at the end, it's not necessarily to remind you of the theme, though it always feels nice to hear something that you've heard. And don't forget that this form evolved when music was played and then was not heard ever again very often. So you wanted to enjoy and hear the music um, again. Actually, the recapitulation is used to bring the music back to the key where it started at the beginning of the movement because what happens is that during the transition right after the first part often this transition is sort of modulating and it takes us into a, a, another key not a far away key most often a sort of a cousin key maybe the uh, minor relative or if you're uh, in G major you'll go into the key that's the most close to it, uh, D, or uh, maybe C, or the relative minor, which would be E minor, for those of you who have uh, a knowledge of uh, the keyboard or, or the key, key relations. And that in itself isn't really super important. All you need to know is that the transition takes you a little bit away to change the mood, and then the recapitulation brings you uh, back to where you started from. This construction is actually used also within the big sonata form where you can't really imagine that the sonata is... And this is a question I asked my music teacher, uh, my uh, analysis teacher. Why? How come the movements are put together like that? Why can you just go into your menuet drawer and pick out the menuet and put it with the first movement and just you know, patch it all together. Everything relates to everything, and often the keys that things are written in relate to each other while you play. That's why you don't get jarred from one movement to the next in the symphony or a sonata. Everything is tied together, and often composers like to put a little sprinkle of the first movement elsewhere, you know, just a little bit of a reminder. Now, The other form that we see in the symphony often is the menuet and trio, and this uh, harkens back to uh, when music was mainly movements of dance. It, you were either composing movements of dance, you know, gavots, menuets, and fugues and stuff that were meant to be lively and rhythmic, or you were composing church music. It was either or. And so in the development of this, the big sonata, it was decided, well, you see, you have a fast movement, the first one, a nice melodic second movement, um, and then let's have a third movement that's uh, more dancing, and it was the menuet. It, it used to be that the, the menuet was paired, always uh, played in pairs, the menuet and trio. And the second menuet was mostly or generally contrasting with the first menuet. And this shape is called ABA because you will play the first menuet, you will play the second menuet, and then you will play the first menuet again. And this is standard. And in early music, actually, you, you often had repeats on movements. And this can be 
brought back to the dance and developed further in the rondo form, which we can talk about later. There are many terms in music that are very uh, confusing because they mean so many different things. And I'll try to go around with my microphone and ask my colleagues what is a sonata form. And I'm certain that I will get a variety of answers. Firstly, because we tend to, you know, eat the apple and not describe it. And secondly, because it's clear that the form is only a description of something that exists already and often it doesn't quite fit the, the mold. Actually, I used to take analysis class where we, uh, we would try to write corals like Bach did. And we'd have the bass line and we would try to uh, make something of it. Or we have the, the top line and we'd try to write a choral underneath. And you know, most of the time the teacher would say, well, there's an exception right here. This is not uh, what you should do, but this is what Bach did. And of course I would say, well, I guess that was the week that he didn't have a harmony lesson. But that's beside the point. Uh, the, the thing is that there are many terms that have multiple meanings in music. And so, if you're confused, you'll know that we are sometimes confused also. A cadenza is many things. A cadenza is the final point of the music. Or, if it's not final, at least it's a punctuation. Beethoven loved to repeat his cadenzas at the end. Pum, he repeats the cadenza, that's a cadenza. Now, the other cadenza is uh, the flourish, like uh, our maestro does when he's playing a concerto. In the middle, we all stop, and uh, the maestro plays a cadenza on his violin. It's, um, it's a bit of um, a showing of a technical prowess, a development on the music uh, that is more free, and often uh, can, uh, or was, in the good old days, was improvised. So those are two terms for, or two definitions for the same term. The other term that can be brought up uh, sometimes when you're uh, talking about uh, analyzing music is the term fugue. And a fugue can be a very uh, technical uh, exercise, which is you take a theme and you play it through and then you play it again in a parent, a relative key. Uh, you reverse it, you fix it a little, but you can still recognize it and you play it on top of the first uh, exposition of this theme. And um, it's a bit like when you play, uh, you know, row, row, row your boat and all the voices come in one after the other at different points, except the fugue is much more, there's many, many rules that that decide how this is going to happen. But, uh, you know, composers insert fugues all the time in their music. And so when you hear a theme that comes after some quiet, often is you know, there's a little bit, and it can be used, the fugue, as a, a development technique or a transition technique. 
So you have some uh, some space, and then a theme comes. Beethoven did it very often. The theme comes, and there's a fugue that's developed because a theme is played once, and then another section plays the theme while the first theme is still going on, and another section, another section, and that's a fugue. Developed to the utmost by by back, it's fantastic. And in classical and romantic music, it's a device that can be very, very interesting. The other problem that we have, which I um, evoked earlier, is the fact that we tend to want to sort of shove the music into the form. When you start paying attention to form, you really want the music to fit. And you know, this is very much like a um, Darwin, where the music, you know, fits the form, and the form gets a little bit uh, changed by the music, and then this changed form is going to be used by somebody else, and then it will become the form. So you have to be patient when you start analyzing like this, you're at the concert and you start listening this way to the music, you'll find that there's exceptions all the time. For example, Sometimes the symphony doesn't start exactly with the first theme. It will have a little introduction. And I remember a long debate we had in school once in analysis class where Ina Kleiner, in, uh, the Petite Musique de Nuit, we were discussing, are the first chords part of the theme or are they just an introduction? Pam, pa-pam, pa-pa-pa-pa-pam, pam, pa-pam. Is that the theme, or is is that the first theme? You see, and we—I remember—we spent hours on that question. It's very interesting once you start digging what you can find. And actually, these composers—I don't know how much they were thinking about the form when they were doing their work. So there you go. You have the sonata form, the little sonata form, the menuet and trio the cadenza, the fugue. And I'll remind you that in Beethoven, the menuet and trio was the part of the symphony that he modified the most with time. It became, uh, in the fifth symphony, it became the scherzo, which means, I think, I'm having fun. This is for fun. And he really changed the, um, the use, which a piece that was a little bit of a... Uh, uh, lightness in, within a symphony became something very developed and very long, very uh, important. And some of his best music is in in the scherzo or menuet and trio. So have fun listening to music, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. That's all for this edition of Explore the Symphony. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Explore the Symphony. Until next time, 
This is Marjolaine Laroche for Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler and our team at the NAC saying goodbye from the National Arts Center.